The Book of the Prophet Habakkuk. He lived during the final decades of Israel's southern kingdom, and it was a time of injustice and idolatry. He saw the rising threat of Babylon on the horizon, and that was not good news for anybody. But unlike the other prophets, Habakkuk does not accuse Israel. He doesn't even speak on God's behalf to the people. Rather, all of his words are addressed personally to God. And the book tells about Habakkuk's personal struggle, his journey of trying to believe that God is good when there is so much evil and tragedy in the world. And so Habakkuk's words are actually poems of lament, and they're very similar to the laments that you find in the book of Psalms. The poet lodges a complaint and then draws God's attention to suffering or injustice in the world, demanding that God do something. And knowing about this lament form, it's actually the key to understanding the design and message of this short book. Chapters 1 and 2 are framed as a back-and-forth argument between Habakkuk and God. And the prophet lodges two complaints to which God offers two responses. His first complaint is that life in Israel has become horrible. The Torah is neglected, resulting in violence and injustice, and it's all being tolerated by Israel's corrupt leaders. And Habakkuk, he's crying out, asking God to do something, but nothing seems to change. But then all of a sudden, God responds. He says that he's very aware of the corruption of his own people, Israel, and that he's summoning the armies of Babylon to bring down his justice on Israel. And very similar to the message of Micah or Isaiah, God says he will use this terrifying empire to devour Israel because of their injustice and evil. But Habakkuk has a problem with this answer, and so he offers his second complaint. He says Babylon is even worse than Israel. They're more corrupt. They're more violent. They've deified their own military power. They treat humans like animals, gathering them up like fish in a net, he says. They devour nations and people groups in order to build their own empire. And so Habakkuk says, how can you, a holy, good God, use such corrupt nations as your instruments in history? He demands an explanation. In fact, he depicts himself as a watchman on the city walls waiting for God's response, which eventually comes. God tells Habakkuk to get out some tablets and chisel and write down what he sees and hears. It's a vision about an appointed time in the future that even though it may seem slow in coming, it will eventually come. In fact, God says that the righteous person will live by their faith in this hope and vision. So what is this divine promise that Habakkuk is supposed to write down? It's that God will bring Babylon down. God says that the violence and oppression of the nations creates this never-ending cycle of revenge and that God will use this cycle to bring about the rise and fall of nations. And the fact that God might for a time use a corrupt nation like Babylon does not mean that he endorses everything that they do. He holds all nations accountable to his justice. And so Babylon will fall along with any other nation that acts like them. God's promise is then elaborated by a series of five woes that describe the kinds of oppression and injustice that's perpetrated by nations like Babylon. The first two target unjust economic practices, like how wealthy people will charge ridiculous interest just to keep poor people in debt. And so they build their wealth through crooked means. The third woe is a critique of slave labor, treating humans like animals and threatening them with violence if they don't produce. The fourth woe targets the abuse of alcohol by irresponsible leaders. While people are suffering under their bad leadership, they're partying and wasting their money on sex and booze. 
And the last woe exposes the idolatry, the engine that drives such nations. They have made money and power and national security into their gods, offering these allegiance at all costs. And so people become slaves to their own national empire. Now the practices described here aren't unique to Babylon, but that's part of the point. Given the human condition, most nations eventually become Babylon. And so this is how God's answer to Habakkuk in this book becomes God's answer to all later generations, to anyone who lives in a world ruled by other Babylons. But it leaves the question hanging. Is God going to let this cycle, the rise and fall of Babylon-like empires, go on forever? And that question is what chapter 3 is about. We're told that this is a prayer of Habakkuk, and it begins by Habakkuk pleading with God to act now in the present like he has in the past in bringing down corrupt nations. And what follows is a very ancient poem. It first describes a powerful, terrifying appearance of God. It's very similar to the opening poems of Micah and Nahum, and similar to the appearance of God at Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus. There's cloud and fire and earthquake. When the Creator shows up to confront human evil, everybody will be paying attention. Habakkuk then goes on to describe this future defeat of evil as a future exodus. So just like God came as a warrior and he split the sea in his battle against Pharaoh, Habakkuk says that God will once more bring his judgment down on the head of the evil house. So Pharaoh, like Babylon, has become here an archetype of violent human nations. But at the same time, we're told that when God confronts evil, he will save his people and his anointed one. It's a reference to the king from the line of David. And so in this poem, the Exodus story of the past has become an image of the future Exodus God will perform. He will once again defeat evil and bring down the pharaohs and the Babylons of this world. He'll bring justice to all people and rescue the oppressed and the innocent. And it's this hope that enables Habakkuk to conclude the book with hopeful praise. Even if the world's falling apart with food shortage or drought or war or whatever, he will choose trust and joy in the covenant promises of God. And so Habakkuk, by the end of this book, becomes a shining example of how the righteous live by faith. Habakkuk recognizes just how dark and chaotic the world and our lives can become, and he invites us into a journey of faith, of trusting that God loves this world more than we do, and that he will one day deal with its evil. And that's what the book of Habakkuk is all about. Just like a high schooler in a high school debate club, Habakkuk come forward, he puts his arguments down, he states the facts that he has before him, he puts his best foot forward, makes his argument, and stands back and says, okay, God, I'm waiting for your response. I'll be patient. He doesn't say, okay, I've told you, this is my opinion, I'm just going to leave now and hope you do the right thing. He goes to the watchtower and waits attentively. He's alert. And he wants to see what God's response is going to be. And in the same way in our lives, when we ask God for things, we have to continue to be alert and attentive and follow through on them. The reality is that God's response to Habakkuk comes soon in the following chapters, but his prayer will not be answered even within his own lifetime. There are a few things that we can learn from, the, uh, from this dialogue between Habakkuk and God. Firstly, God will use unconventional means, things that we would never think of, to, res 
to achieve his objective and reach the goals that he has in order to protect his people. Secondly, God's hand is with his people every step of the way. He will not leave or abandon them. And even when it seems he isn't there, he most certainly is. And when we call on his name, he will listen. And thirdly, we need to wait expectantly. We need to wait with anticipation that he will answer our prayers. Be patient and trust. Remain attentive to his word like a guard in a watchtower. We need to pray without ceasing, seek his word, and seek counsel of those around us that we trust. The Lord's reply, his second reply is this. Then the Lord said to me, write my answers plainly on tablets so that a runner can carry the correct message to others. This vision is for a future time. It describes the end and it will be fulfilled. If it seems slowly in coming, wait patiently, for it will surely take place. It will not be delayed. Firstly, I want to say thank goodness for Snapchat and Twitter. Could you imagine having to carve this out on a bunch of tablets and pack it from city to city and town to town to show all the people? I'm so glad we live in this day and age. But aside from that, what God says here is that the wicked will be judged. The righteous will prevail. Even though it may not be on our timeline, it will be on his. We can't determine how God will fulfill his plans or how he will judge the nations. But we must trust that he's attentive to his people. He knows their struggles and he most certainly knows what's best for each and every one of us. We too often get caught up in our small perspective, in our little world, in the things around us. But we fail to see God's picture until we look back on our lives and see how he's been playing a role. Chapter 3 is the response from God to Habakkuk. God's direction, um, to God's direction that he must remain patient. Habakkuk 3 starts off with, This prayer was sung by the prophet Habakkuk. I have heard all about you, Lord. I am filled with awe by your amazing words. In this time of our deep need, help us again as you did in years gone by. And in your prayer, remember mercy. After hearing God's response, Habakkuk is reminded that God is in control. He has the bigger perspective and we are called to trust. He writes this as a song it's, again, we say, is a magnificent poem. And even though he's call, uh, he is called a prophet and has a book titled after him, he's unlike many of the other prophets. He does not go and speak to the people. He does not go and warn them. He does not talk to kings or judges or rulers and provide them with direction and advice. He is known for speaking to God, for seeking God's direction and guidance, asking for help, and for praising his name. I'm sure many of you heard of the different, the seven phases of guilt, the seven phases of this and that and everything else that's out there. I see this book, when you read through it, as a progression through those phases. The first three phases talk about shock and denial, pain, guilt, anger, and bargaining. And we see Habakkuk doing this. He's shocked that God is allowing all this injustice in the world, allowing his, the, this injustice to go unpunished and there be no consequences. We see Habakkuk trying to negotiate with God, saying, God, please don't do this. We need to dial this back. I don't want to see my people destroyed. He makes a request of God. He receives a response where God says that he's going to have them become captives. That terrifies them and makes them realize what he asked for. He says, surely you do not plan to wipe us out. And must I forever see these evil deeds? 
Why must I watch all this misery? Or should you be silent while the wicked swallow up our people more righteous than they? After going through those first stages, the fourth stage is reflection, and we see Habakkuk going to the watchtower, standing back, contemplating, waiting, and listening, and waiting for God's response. From there, the fifth stage is referred to as the upward turn, and this is where God gives his response, his assurance, that justice will come, that God will take care of his people. The sixth stage is referred to as working through. And if you look at chapter 3, there's one thing that repeats itself three times, the words, even though. Even though the fig trees have no blossoms, even though the olive crops fail, even though the flocks die in the fields, even though all of these things he comes to the seventh stage, which is acceptance and hope. Chapter 3 ends with, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my salvation. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes me as sure-footed as a deer, able to tread upon the heights. God heard Habakkuk and spoke with him, shared his thoughts, respecting God and caring for his people. He provided him with a glimpse of the bigger picture of the future. When we pray to God, we oftentimes pray hoping that we're going to change his mind. But that's in our small perspective. The reality is, sometimes God may change his mind or may, things may seem to turn out different than they, they look like they're going to happen. We know that God is watching over us and protecting us. But other times, it's not about changing God's mind or changing direction. But it's about seeing the bigger picture, having the bigger perspective, waiting and being patient and allowing God to open our minds to see that. When things are brought into perspective, it is the same as the response that Habakkuk had. We are brought to our knees in praise. God may or may not change his plan for our lives, but he most certainly will do what's best for us. He will do what's best for his people, and he will listen. Example of that is Jesus' death on the cross. Jesus, his own son, said to him, Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. And God didn't know that because he wanted to do what was best for his people. He could have easily saved his own son, but he took care of us, even to seeing his son die on the cross. And if God is willing to send his own son to the cross for us, we know that he will do anything to protect us and care for us, as long as we continue to be faithful and trust him. In this world, we will have many struggles. We will face many difficult times. But the reality is God is with us. We see Judah here about to be taken hostage by the Babylonians. But in reality, in the world we live in, and in the world that they lived in, they were already hostages. They're hostages to the world around them, to the temptations that they face every day, to the downfalls that they had, the sins that they were living, the sins that we live. Many years ago, when I was just a little bit of a junior member in uh, the RCMP, I was involved in a hostage situation in Cranbrook. Some of you may know this, but uh, being in Cranbrook, it was, uh, it was actually pretty big news because what happened was this lady, well, first of all, there's these two uh, people, a guy and a girl, that went and did a robbery at a uh, video store. Video stores like those even exist now, but they're dating myself. Uh, but a robbery at a video store where they actually went in with a handgun, stole the money, tied the employee up, and stole the employee's car. The police found out about this when the lady was able to free herself that was tied up and called the police and reported it. And there was a high-speed chase where the police were chasing after the stolen vehicle. 
And they, the guy in the vehicle was actually shooting out the back window and shooting at the police car, so they had to abandon the chase. The following day, after this had been on the media and everybody knew about it, a lady was out in her garden in a rural area, and she saw two people walking across the field and re immediately realized that these were the suspects from seeing the news. She ran to her house, picked up the phone to call 911, and as she was making the call, the, call was ripped out, the phone was ripped out of the wall and the phone was disconnected. Police got the call because it was and referred to what's called an abandoned 911 call, and they still send a police officer for this. So when a police officer walked up to the house, the male, the guy with the gun, reached out the window of the house and shot the police officer, hitting him in the shoulder. After this continued seven days of this lady being stuck in the house, hostage with these two people. She couldn't leave, they were holding her at gunpoint, and most of the time she was tied up. It's hard to imagine the horror that she'd be living through, knowing that these people were capable of shooting at police, shooting a police officer, and now holding her hostage and taking her up, having no idea what was going to happen to, what was going to, happen to her, never mind the baby in her tummy because she was nine months pregnant and due to have a child any day. She was absolutely terrified. And I worked with the hostage negotiation team through this whole thing as part of the emergency response team and went back and forth and back and forth, finally came to a decision that the sister of one of the suspects was willing to exchange herself and go into the house to allow this lady to come out so that she could have proper medical care for her and her child. And they did the swap, first time it's ever happened in policing history in Canada, likely never to happen again because it's unlikely that something like that would actually go well, but this time it did. And instead of keeping two hostages, they let the lady go. And the next day she had a healthy baby in the hospital. It was that close to her due date. Um, the following day, this friend or the sister was able to get herself loose and run out of the house because these people were so exhausted from seven days of doing this, of being alert all the time, that when they fell asleep, she was able to get, get free. And she had been tied up too, but release her ties and get out of the house. And that's how that whole scenario ended. But like the woman that was hostage in her own home, Judah was hostage now to the Babylonians. They were hostage to the sin in their lives, and we are hostages in this world. We are hostages as every single day we're faced with temptation, and we're faced with sins. The suspects took the sister in place, and in that same way, Jesus took our place. Even though we are hostages in this world, we know that we are freed because Jesus paid the ransom. And that's why that song that Sean sang earlier just hit me because that ransom has been paid. We are all subject to living in the world. The problem is that we are supposed to live, we are not supposed to live of the world. We are here, but we are here merely as aliens, visiting this place, waiting for that day where God will come and take us home. Our culture is no different than the day in, back in Habakkuk. We, are as, we have as much moral decay around us now as they did back then maybe in different forms and ways, but it's here and it's present every single day we see it. The essence of our struggle in this life is to live in this world, but not be of the world. Even though we're hostages here, we know that ultimately we have been freed of that through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. We often pray for relief from these worldly struggles that we face. We feel these frustrations when we don't see the answer but we must maintain the perspective that God is in control. That even when we see all these things happening around us, God is still present. He is still alert. He has not abandoned us, and he cares for us. I can summarize the book of Habakkuk in these following three verses. First of all, 
Habakkuk complains, chapter 1, verse 2. How long, O Lord, must I call for your help? But you do not listen. We are called to turn to God, to seek his guidance, to pray to him, to bear our hearts before him and show all of our struggles. In Habakkuk 2, verse 2, Habakkuk waits. I will wait to see what the Lord says and how he will answer my complaint. We are called to be patient. That in times of adversity and difficulty, no matter what's going on, we're called to be patient, to wait, to be attentive and be alert. And he will listen to us and he will hear us. And lastly, Habakkuk rejoices in chapter 3, verse 2. I am filled with awe by your amazing words. And in chapter 3, verse 18, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in the God of my salvation. And every day in our lives, we must be filled with the joy that we know that God is in control and that he has a future for every one of us here, as long as we have faith and live in him. Close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this morning, and thank you for this chance to be able to speak about and remind each one of us here how you are in control, how you are ever-present, that you are always there watching over us and protecting us, that you never abandon us. Father, that you care for us so much that you would allow your own son to die on the cross for us as a ransom for our sins, and that we must feel your joy, be filled with everlasting joy, knowing that our day will come and we'll be reunited with you, that all these struggles that we face on a daily basis, all these difficulties that this world presents before us, fade in comparison to knowing that you are there and that you love us. Amen.